We are familiar with the cross, perhaps overly so. By that I mean not that we think too much of the cross, but perhaps we think of it too lightly. It is the symbol of our faith, and rightfully so, and so it adorns our churches. For us, it is even our pulpit. As art, it resides on our walls. As jewelry, it often is seen around our necks. We have just completed a Wednesday night study going through the Apostles' Creed, and when we reached the statement concerning Jesus that said He was crucified, died, and was buried, we talked about the fact that what I've just mentioned about art and jewelry would not have been true in the first century. There was no Jewish home that had a cross as art in their home. There were no Jewish women who wore necklaces of a cross around their necks. That would be like us today wearing a miniature electric chair around our necks as a piece of jewelry. None of us would do that. The cross was an instrument of death, cruel death at that. So while today it is a symbol of love, greater love has no man than a man lay down his life for his friends. While today it is a symbol of beauty, and while today it is a symbol of the ultimate sacrifice, as we gather at the foot of this first century cross, none of these thoughts were on the minds of those who witnessed it that day. Josephus, the Jewish historian, called crucifixion the most wretched of all ways of dying. When death comes knocking at our door, or that of a loved one, we want it to be as painless and perhaps as quick as possible. We even say sometimes when someone dies in their sleep, we say of them, well, at least they died peacefully. When we know that someone has reached the end of this life, that is, there is nothing else doctors can do, we place them on what is called comfort care. That means the goal is no longer to save their life. Now the goal is simply to ease their pain, to allow them to live as comfortably as possible in their dying days. I have been in countless hospital rooms where it appears that the finger of the one laying in the bed is glued to the morphine pump, and they are ready to push it anytime it is allowed. And sometimes they even ask me, if it's okay, should I be doing this? And I always tell them that I'm confident I would be doing the same thing if I were in their shoes. Needless to say, Roman execution squads were not interested in easing the pain. They were interested in prolonging it, along with the shame that accompanied crucifixion. Last week, we looked at the trials of Jesus. In fact, for the last two weeks, we've looked at the trials of Jesus, the first being the Jewish trial during the night in front of the Sanhedrin, the council of 71 men who ran the religious life of the Jews, and for that matter, part of the political life. And then last week, we looked at the Roman trial where they sent him to Pilate because they did not have the power of the sword. They could not put anyone to death. Only Rome could do that, and so they take him to Pilate that he might be sentenced to crucifixion. We ended last week in verse 20, 
where Mark says matter-of-factly, and they led him out to crucify him. Such matter-of-fact reporting is common in Mark and, for that matter, in the other gospel writers. There is no attempt in their retelling to create sympathy for Jesus. There is no attempt in their retelling of this story to conjure up in our minds hatred for the enemies, although both sympathy for Jesus and hatred for the enemies is certainly present. The gospel writers simply tell what happened, often with more brevity and simplicity than we would prefer. But we must also remember that they are telling something that their initial audience is well familiar with. Sadly, the audience to whom Mark is writing is all too familiar with crucifixions. They've seen it before, whether that be in Rome or in Jerusalem. It simply was a part of public life. So they did not need the details. And as I said last week, we are largely isolated from violence. At least personally speaking, I get that we see it on television and in movies, but personally speaking, most of us have never seen such violence up close and personal. And if we ever understood everything that is going on in these verses, we no doubt would turn our heads and be shocked by the scene that we see. Last week we looked at the king condemned. Today we examine the king declared. I'm going to read this section by section as we've done occasionally throughout this study of Mark's gospel. And so we are going to begin in chapter 15 and verse 21 with the king's crucifixion. Verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So this first section that we're looking at this morning gets us to the very heart of the gospel, and that is the cross. As we think about the king's crucifixion. We mentioned last week that the execution squad that was going to carry out this sentence was made up of four soldiers, and those four soldiers would have been commanded by a centurion. Now, a centurion had his name because he was over 100 soldiers, but in this case, he is in charge of the four men who are going to carry out the sentence against Jesus. It is going to be their responsibility 
having flogged him severely to put the actual process in place. Mark picks up the story by introducing us to a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, a man whom we know little about outside of this particular story. But before he bursts on the scene, we, we need some background information. It was customary for the condemned man to carry the crossbeam to the site of the crucifixion. I realize we are used to seeing a picture of someone carrying the entire cross. When, when we see reenactments around Easter time, invariably someone will have the entire cross being carried. But that is in all likelihood not what happened. It seems that the vertical portion of the cross was permanently fixed in place. And the condemned criminal would carry the horizontal part on his shoulders to the place where he would be crucified. And there the horizontal part would be attached to the vertical, making the familiar T. Jesus does begin this process. The other gospel writers tell us that. But he is not able to complete it, falling along the way. And remember, he's been up all night. He's gone through multiple trials, and then he has been flogged. And he simply does not have the physical strength to finish. So Simon, a man from North Africa, is drafted into service to carry the portion of of the cross. He was probably Jewish and thus in town for the Passover, but again, we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that pe people hated the compulsory service that Rome imposed on them. He did not do this willingly, he was compelled. That is, the soldiers forced him to do this. It seems odd to us that Mark mentions his two sons. In fact, if you've been with us throughout Mark's gospel, you know that Mark does not mention a lot of names, period. But here in this case, he mentions not only Simon, but he mentions that he had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And the reason he mentions those must be because the church in Rome to which he is writing is familiar with them. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Romans... That was some 20 plus years after the writing of Mark's gospel, mentions in the last chapter, chapter 16, where Paul is, is making comments about who to say hello to, he mentions a man by the name of Rufus. And most believe that this is the same man who is the son of Simon, who is now a member of the church in Rome. So it is likely that Simon's two sons, perhaps even Simon himself, were converted to faith in Christ by this chance encounter. Now, having said it was a chance encounter, you understand that there is no such thing with God. This is not a chance encounter that Simon is compelled to carry the cross. This is yet another example of how God is divinely in control of this entire scene. And so they arrive at the site a place called Golgotha in the Aramaic. It is translated for us, obviously for them it was translated into Greek and for us into English, as the place of the skull. We often call it Calvary. Calvary comes from the Latin, which means scalp or bald head. When we were in Israel, we were in what is considered to be the garden tomb area where we actually went into one of the burial sites. There's no indication that it was the actual tomb of Jesus, but it is one that was like it. And so we stooped in one by one and went into this little tomb that was hewn into the rock there in the hillside. 
But from that garden area, we were shown a, a rocky hill in the distance. And this rocky hill had some features that might look like a skull, and therefore some believe that that was the place of the crucifixion. But most scholars believe that the actual place is where the church of the Holy Sepulchre is now built. I have a couple of pictures I want to show you of this church. The first picture that will come up is the outside of that church. There's nothing really really great here. It is just like many other ancient churches, but that is the outside of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this next picture is a picture of the inside. It's difficult to see because it's so dark in there, but it was very gaudy. All kinds of memorabilia and remembrances hanging from the place where it is believed Jesus was crucified. This is supposedly the very place, and so this commemorates that. Well, having arrived at the site, Jesus is offered a drink, a combination of wine and myrrh. This, too, is in fulfillment of Scripture, a primitive narcotic to deaden the pain. But Jesus refuses the drink, desiring instead to suffer the full pain in full consciousness. Now, this is in no way a commentary on what you and I ought to do when we are in pain. This is not a testimony that because Jesus did this, we ought to refuse painkillers as well. That is not the point at all. The point is simply that having submitted to the will of the Father in the garden, knowing what lies ahead for Him, Jesus is intent on suffering the pain for your sins in mine, fully conscious of what He is doing. Again, the wording is brief and matter-of-fact. Verse 24, and they crucified Him. The casting of lots for His garments is noted. A perk for those whose job it was to handle the crucifixion. Once again, this is prophesied in the Old Testament. The time is now 9 a.m. Jews reckon time from 6 a.m. So when it says it is the third hour, that means we are at 9 a.m. in the morning. And again, as was the custom, they put the charge on a placard above his head stating why the criminal was dying. In this case, for Jesus, they put it up there saying, the king of the Jews. This, of course, is the political charge that they brought before Pilate. The Jewish charge, the religious charge, is not going to hold any sway in a Roman court. So the fact that he blasphemed according to them, saying that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, is not going to bring a sentence of death in Rome. But what will is the idea that he believes himself to be a king, a rival to Caesar. And so they put this on the placard. I remind you that crucifixion took place outside of the city walls, but not in order to not be seen. In fact, it took place on a busy road. Rome was intent on as many people as possible witnessing the crucifixion, not just those who came to see it, but those who may be coming into town or out of town. The more people that see it, the more deterrent it might be to future crimes. And so you might assume that this is where I get my title, the king declared, because he's got a placard above the cross that says this is the king of the Jews, but that is not where I get my title, because this was done in jest. This was a way of mocking not only Jesus, but the Jews who brought him to Rome. The familiar scene around Easter of three crosses, 
the one in the middle being larger than the other two, is a familiar scene because there were two others that were crucified with him. Two robbers, Mark tells us, one on the left and one on the right. The word robbers is a word that can also be used to refer to a zealot or an insurrectionist. So it is possible that these two men who are crucified with Jesus were were part of the insurrection that Barabbas was a part of, though, of course, we do not know that for certain. What we do know that in a strange twist here, these two robbers or insurrectionists occupy the very places that James and John said they wanted. You remember that? James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, came to him on one occasion and they said to him, Jesus, we want you to grant us what we ask. And he says, well, what do you want? We want the places of honor, one on your right and one on your left when you come into the kingdom. James and John are not here in this case, but two robbers are. Now, you may have noticed that I didn't read verse 28. This is another textual variant. I say that so that you know I know. This is there because most believe that the best manuscripts do not contain this verse. Though you might find it in a footnote, it might even be in your translation. And you will notice that if you have it there, that there is nothing unbiblical about what it says. There's nothing wrong with what it says. It is just that it does not appear in the best manuscripts. So the mocking, of course, continues, both from those who were passing by and from the religious leaders who have arrived to revel in their success. They hurl the religious charge from the trial at Jesus. He could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, but he can't take himself down from a cross. He saved others, they say, no doubt referring to his ministry where he had healed and done miraculous things, and so they have seen or at least heard of his miraculous powers and how he has saved many other people, and yet he cannot save himself. They even promise to believe if he will come down. Yet another indication that demanding signs are not proof of faith. Rather, the demand for signs is actually the proof of the opposite. It's proof of unbelief. If he can't save himself, how can he be the Son of God? Must have been the conclusion that they came to. But remember, he is not there to save himself. Chapter 10 and verse 45. Jesus himself said that he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. So here is the same temptation. This is the same temptation that he faced way back in the wilderness where Satan says, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. The temptation for glory without the suffering. Here is the same temptation that he faced in the garden where he sorrowfully prayed, Father, if there be some other way, let this cup pass from me. The glory without the suffering, nevertheless, not my will but yours. He didn't give in on those two previous occasions, and he's certainly not going to do so now. He is not going to come down from the cross because he's there for you. And if he comes down from the cross, he cannot save you or me. In fact, the word that is used of the passerby is they derided him. That's actually the word for blaspheme meaning that they are the ones guilty of blasphemy. They are hurling charges at Jesus and blaspheming in the process, the very thing they charged him with doing. Even the two criminals get involved. Apparently their own guilt and suffering is not enough, and so they turn on Jesus 
as well. Though Luke's gospel tells us that one of them later changed his mind. One of them later looked at the other one and said, don't you understand that we're here righteously? That is, we deserve what we're getting. But this man is innocent. And he turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus issues that famous promise, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, that is grace through and through. This man on the cross, this robber or insurrectionist, had certainly done nothing in his life worthy of Jesus giving him such a promise, and he's got no time to atone for his own sins. He is on the verge of death. And yet Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. What a great promise. While we are not done with the king's crucifixion, we do need to move on to the second section where we see the king's death, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma thabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So from the king's crucifixion, we move to the king's death. It is now noon, and darkness covers the land. Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. It sometimes took two or three days for someone to die from crucifixion, depending, of course, upon the severity of the flogging which preceded it. Death would come from exhaustion or asphyxiation or a combination of the two. The length of crucifixion could be hastened by breaking of the legs rendering it impossible for the condemned to push up and get any more breath. And this, the other gospel writers tell us, is what the soldiers came to do. After all, it is almost the Sabbath, and we cannot have criminals on the cross on the Sabbath. So when sun goes down, the Sabbath begins, and yet they do not have to break the legs of Jesus, for he is already dead. The phenomenon of darkness has been variously explained it cannot be a solar eclipse because this is impossible at the time of the full moon, which is when the Passover happened. Others have said it was clouds or even a dark storm. But these simply do not explain a midday darkness. Only one thing can explain this three hours of darkness. 
It is a supernatural darkness, again, that is prophesied in the Old Testament, this time by the prophet Amos. Do you hear how often I'm saying that? That this was prophesied? That this happened, that Scripture might be fulfilled? Over and over again we hear this because this is another reminder that God is still in control of this entire thing. Darkness in Scripture is often a symbol of evil. Perhaps in this case, the apparent triumph of evil. Or more likely, a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. In the Old Testament, the ninth plague in Israel was a plague of darkness. Darkness for three days. A darkness that Exodus tells us could be felt. And you can well imagine that the people who are standing here at the cross, witnessing not only a crucifixion, but now they are standing in darkness must at least understand that they are watching something unique. At three in the afternoon, having been on the cross now for six hours, Jesus speaks. There are actually seven sayings from the cross. In fact, we did a sermon series in 2014 that looked at all seven of these sayings. But Mark only records one, and it is the most difficult to interpret and understand. Again, the words are spoken in Aramaic, and then Mark translates them for his audience into Greek, and then, of course, we have it in English. It is the cry of being forsaken by God Himself, and this is what gives people so much trouble. Some simply cannot fathom how God could forsake His own Son, even if it is in this most gut-wrenching of situations. The words themselves come from Psalm 22 and verse 1, a psalm I read, selected verses from earlier, because it has multiple things that are fulfilled at the cross. So some have concluded that Jesus, in quoting the first verse, was simply calling attention to the entirety of the psalm. That was something that was done. And his Jewish audience at the cross would have understood that when he quoted Psalm 22 and verse 1, he's referring to the whole psalm. And ultimately, the psalm ends on a positive note. So maybe what Jesus is doing here is calling attention to the entire psalm. And it's not a cry of being forsaken. Rather, it's a cry of confidence in God. That God is going to deliver him in spite of the despair and tragedy that he is currently in. Others say that maybe Jesus felt forsaken, though the reality was that he was not. And we've been in those situations. We've felt forsaken by God, but deep down we know that God does not forsake his own. And yet I'm not comfortable with either of those explanations. I prefer to let the statement stand as it would naturally be interpreted. That is, Jesus felt forsaken by God because in this moment he was forsaken by God. He was bearing our sin and experiencing the wrath of God on our behalf, and as a result, the Father turned away. I believe this is what had him wrestling in the garden as well, knowing what was going to come. Jesus was not worried about the mocking. He wasn't crying out that there might be another way because he was afraid of what people might say. He wasn't even primarily concerned with the physical abuse as harsh and cruel as it was. He knew this moment was coming. This moment 
when he would in fact be separated from his father with whom he had enjoyed a relationship for all eternity. Because in bearing our sins, he had to be forsaken by his father. God forsaken by God. I mean, who can understand that? Though we do understand that Jesus was not renouncing his father with this bitter expression. Of course, the crowd didn't see nor understand it in this way. They believe he is crying out for Elijah. Evidently, the similarity in that first word, Eloi, led them to believe that Jesus was crying out for Elijah. There was a belief that because Elijah had not died, because he had been transferred into heaven without death, that he would come back during times of crisis and rescue the righteous. So this is what Jesus is crying out, they think, and so they offer him a drink, a different drink this time, not the same one that we saw earlier that we said was our narcotic trying to deaden the pain. This is the common drink of the soldiers, the common wine that they would have used for refreshment or even as a stimulant. They give it to Jesus now, not to refresh him, but they want to keep him conscious as long as possible to see whether Elijah will in fact come to his rescue. And this is followed by a second cry, a cry that Mark does not record for us other than it's a loud cry. Some have equated this with the statement in the other Gospels where Jesus said, it is finished Both of these cries are recorded as being loud and again remind us that Jesus is in control. Remember I told you that death by crucifixion not only took multiple days in most cases, but it was usually associated with a loss of consciousness. That is, the the condemned gradually lost consciousness before they ultimately died. And so yes, there was cries of pain early on, but not at the end. At the end, they were out of it. Not so with Jesus. His death appears to be sudden and somewhat violent. These two cries tell us that Jesus was not gradually losing his life. Others were not taking it from him. He was giving it for us. The death of Jesus is accompanied by a second supernatural phenomenon. The first being darkness for those three hours. The second being the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom. There are actually two curtains in the temple, one before the Holy of Holies and the other before the court of Israel. And Mark does not specify for us which one he is referring to. The court of Israel was the place where Jewish men worshipped. And if this is the temple curtain that he's referring to, it would have been a much more public display. That is, many people would have been able to see this. And the idea would have been that no longer is it just for the Jews, but the temple curtain has been torn in two because salvation is for the Jew as well as the Gentile. If he's referring to the inner curtain, that is the temple before the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the one that only the high priest went in, and that only once a year on the Day of Atonement, only a few select priests would have been able to see this display And this would have been symbolic of the fact that now access to God is available for all. We don't have to go through a priest any longer because we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ himself, Hebrews says, 
who has made atonement for our sins, and therefore we have access to God because Jesus has paid our sin debt. Both of these things are true. So whether it is the inner curtain or the outer curtain really doesn't make a lot of difference because salvation is for the Jew and the Gentile, and we do come through the atonement of Christ. The early church fathers also took this tearing of the curtain to symbolize the coming destruction of the temple, something we've heard Jesus prophesy. And so now the king is dead, and the drama focuses now on a Roman soldier, the centurion, that is the leader of a hundred men, but in this case, the leader of the four-man execution squad. Remember, he has no doubt witnessed and taken part in countless crucifixions. He knows how this goes. But there is something different about the way this man died. There is something different about what he's just witnessed that changes his mind about all of that, meaning that there is something different about Jesus himself. Look again at his statement in verse 39. Truly this man was the Son of God. This is where I get my title. Not from the placard above the cross, but from the declaration of a centurion that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, some commentators say that this is the climax to Mark's gospel. Verse 39. I hesitate to go that far because I think the climax must be the resurrection. But this is a high point to be sure. We started the study of this gospel on the second Sunday of January, meaning that nearly 10 months we've been in this gospel of Mark. So I don't expect you to remember, but the very first verse, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, Mark begins the gospel by saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now we hear that same phrase from the lips of, of a Roman centurion, that indeed Jesus is the Son of God. Now, do you realize throughout Mark's gospel that no human being has ever made this statement until verse 39? God the Father made it from heaven. Demons have said it when Jesus was casting them out, but no human being in the gospel of Mark, not even his disciples, have said Jesus is the Son of God until this Roman centurion who is in charge of his execution, an enemy of Jesus and of the Jews, makes this startling claim. Again, some try to soften it, believing that there's no way that he could have known this in a Christian sense. So maybe he simply means that Jesus is a son of God, not the, but a. Maybe he's a noble man who died a martyr's death. Maybe he's a hero, to put it in our terminology. But it is clear that Mark is using this phrase in its full Christian sense. Having set out to write the story of Jesus, the son of God, Mark now brings that story to a completion with a man who recognizes Jesus to be just that. There are also some women here following from a distance, but at least they were there. Following from a distance is better than being absent. 
The only record we have that any of the disciples were there is that one of the sayings of Jesus from the cross is directed to John about caring for Jesus' mother. Other than that, we have no record that any of the disciples were actually at this scene, though, of course, they might have been. But these women, they had been with Jesus from the start. They had been serving Him and ministering to Him from Galilee until now, and they are not about to abandon Him in this moment. Well, after death, of course, comes burial. And so we've seen the king's crucifixion and the king's death. And now this last section, we see the king's burial, verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. It was actually customary to leave the body on the cross. Romans were not done with shame just because the criminal had died. They would leave the body there to decay naturally or to be scavenged by birds or other animals. But if a family member asked for the body, they would likely grant it. But in this case, it is not a family member, which makes this somewhat unique. While the Romans left the body there for public display, this was offensive to the Jews. They believed that a quick and decent burial was an act of piety, and that even their enemies or criminals deserved such a burial. We still have this same kind of thing now. We can't rest until someone is laid to rest. And so Joseph of Arimathea gets gets up the courage to ask for the body of Jesus. Now, did you catch that it said he was a member of the council? Yes, that same body, that Sanhedrin, the 70 plus the high priest, the 71 religious leaders of the Jews, Joseph of Arimathea is a part of that group. Either he was absent during the trial, or he abstained from the vote, or perhaps even voted against it. Matthew and John both identify him as a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one. And his actions here testify to that same truth. Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. Again, the process could take days. And so he asked the centurion for verification. And having received verification, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph then takes the body down from the cross, wraps him in a cloth, and lays him in a tomb. And as I said, the tomb would not have been a burial plot as we know it today, putting someone in the ground. It was a small cave. And in that cave, there would have been carved out niches or places to lay the body. And the body would have been put there 
And in fact, there were multiple places in these tombs. They were not for one person alone. They were used for multiple people. And after the body had decayed, the bones would be gathered and put in an osary, and then the tomb would have been used again. So Jesus' body is placed in this tomb. A stone is rolled on the front. We tend to see pictures of a huge boulder that we imagine was pushed forward to the front of the tomb. But likely this is a cylinder, a circular stone that is rolled from the side. It's in a groove and it is rolled into the side. Easy to roll in, but not so easy to roll out. Placed there so that the tomb is not uh, used by robbers or animals. The mention of the women, again, is a note to let us know that they were eyewitnesses. They knew where the burial place was, meaning that they did not get confused when they come back on Sunday morning to properly anoint the body of Jesus. They did not go to the wrong tomb, as some people claim, because they had seen where the body was put. In fact, there's at least four people at the burial that we know about. The two women that are mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea, And John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus, another religious leader, helped Joseph. So the king's burial was witnessed by four people, two Pharisees and two women. You ever thought about that? There's no disciples here that we know of. Two Pharisees, enemies of Jesus, though these two obviously are not, and two women And thus concludes the earthly life of Jesus. He has been condemned to death because of blasphemy in the Jewish trial and because he makes himself out to be a king, a a rival to Caesar according to the Roman trial. And this morning we've seen him declared to be the Son of God against all odds by the man who was in charge of putting him to death. If you recall, we actually fast-forwarded back in the spring In order to coincide with the Christian calendar, on one occasion we fast-forwarded to chapter 11 and looked at the triumphal entry, and then on Easter Sunday we fast-forwarded to Mark chapter 16. And so our study of the Gospel of Mark is now complete with the king's burial. Three witnesses have testified that Jesus is in fact dead. Joseph of Arimathea, Pilate, And the centurion, all have said that Jesus has in fact died. Now keep in mind that the Romans knew what they were doing when it came to crucifixion. They had put to death hundreds of thousands of criminals. And so they knew the difference between a dead man and one who was just unconscious. Putting to rest that theory that Jesus merely swooned on the cross. He became unconscious and then when he was put in the coolness of the tomb, he revived. The Romans knew the difference. There is no record of anyone ever surviving a Roman cross. Not one. Of all of the hundreds of thousands of people they put to death by this cruelest form of capital punishment, there is not one record of anybody surviving the cross. But there is the record of one who died by crucifixion, was buried, and yet rose from the dead. And so I certainly cannot conclude this sermon with the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. 
Here again, most of us know the rest of the story, so it does not come as a shock to us. But just imagine the shock of the women when they come to the tomb on that Sunday morning. And so in closing, I merely read you the account. Mark 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, the same women who we just saw were at the burial, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So because Jesus is alive, you have a decision to make. Is Jesus a blasphemer condemned by the Sanhedrin to death because he made himself out to be God when he was not? Is Jesus an insurrectionist as declared by the Roman trial because he made himself out to be a king and in fact he is not? Or is Jesus, as this centurion said, the Son of God who is in fact risen from the dead? What say ye? Is he the Son of God or not? That's what you've got to decide. Let me pray.